Open God's Word, if you would, to the second chapter of Acts. Acts chapter 2. He is risen. He is risen. risen. All right. That's where we started last week. Um, Peter is preaching to the group gathered in the tabernacle there after this is Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. And all the people from the different lands, they were Jews, but they were in Jerusalem, some of them had come back from captivity and were living there. And they received, they, they heard the noise. And the, the apostles and the 120 received the baptism and the filling of the Holy Spirit. They heard the noise and the crowd gathered and came. And, and some mocked and said, these guys are drunk. But then Peter rebukes them and he, and he preaches a message. And that's what we've been going over the last couple weeks. Beginning in Acts chapter 2 verse 14. Peter took a stand with the eleven and raised his voice and declared to them. And he's preaching to them, telling them what's going on. And he says, remember Joel. And the, the, the prophet Joel in his writings told us that the Holy Spirit would be coming. This shouldn't be a shock or a surprise to you guys. Joel in verses 17 to 21 there of Acts chapter 2 is, is the, is the section from the book of Joel talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then Acts 2.22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, and here, here's where he cuts to the quick, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. We've talked about that, that it was the, the Jews did the physical, pushed for the physical crucifixion of Christ, but it's your sin and my sin as well that put him there. He, he died for you and he died for me. He died for everyone, each one of us. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. In verse 24, God raised him up again, and that's why we say he is risen. He is risen indeed, because God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And, and I love to read that. And that is such a powerful statement. It says, putting an end to the agony of death. And and I'd like to just a little paraphrase, and I'm not taking anything or adding anything to God's word. But because it was not possible for death to hold Christ down. It was not possible for death to hold Christ down. And then... Peter in his sermon here quotes from uh, Psalm 16 in the next few verses and then 
as, as we go forward through verse 30, 31, and on down to 36, he quotes from Psalm 132 and Psalm 110. And it says where he talks about that Christ's body would not have decay like, like our bodies do when we die. And he's talking very much about David here in verse 29, talking that David both died and was buried in his tombs with us this day. But death could not hold Christ. Death could not hold Christ. He was risen from the dead and had victory over sin. We looked at 1 Corinthians 15.55. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting is gone. We that know Christ have hope. That those that die before us that know, that know Jesus Christ, we will see them again. And that's the hope that we have because death could not hold Christ down. It was not possible for death to hold him down. So then verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again to which we will all, we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. John the Baptist, we saw that Joel in his writings talked about the Holy Spirit and His power and His coming. John the Baptist foretold it in his ministry. Christ told about it in his ministry. And Christ said, I I have to leave here so that I can send the Holy Spirit that's been promised. The promise of the Holy Spirit is poured forth that which you see and hear. What's going on? What's going on with these men being able to speak in your home language? And in the verses... Uh, back early in chapter 2, uh, verse 9 and 10 and 11 talked about the, the 15 different parts of the world and cities and regions that, that the Jewish men had come back and were living in, in Jerusalem. And, and so there's a bunch of different languages. And each one of them heard the gospel of Christ preached in their own language. So Peter goes on in verse 36, and we kind of ended here last week, although we did, we did go to Daniel 5 just for a few minutes and talk about Belshazzar and how he, I don't know, I, I don't know if blaspheme is a strong, strong enough word or too strong, but he said he, he openly defied the God of Israel by taking the goblets from the temple and drinking from them. He, he was so far out of his mind. He was just nuts. And we, we read in Job 31. Where the, the phrase comes from. You have been weighed. And found wanting. God said enough is enough. Belshazzar. Tonight is the night. It's your last night. Job 12. We looked at Job 12. And it says that he holds our breath in his hands. We know he knows how many hairs are on our heads. But he holds the number of breaths that we will breathe in our hands. And he knows when each of our appointed times are. Isn't that I mean that 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 is just so comforting to know that he's got it. That if something happens unexpectedly to somebody It wasn't unexpected to God. It's only unexpected to us. 
because he knows and he loves us so much that he has a plan for each one of us. Be careful not to defy God in your life. Be careful how, how you talk about him. Be careful what you say about him. And more importantly, be careful of the attitude of your heart because he knows your heart. Even if it doesn't come out in words, he knows our hearts. He knows the motivations. He knows why we do the things we do. He understands us. And that can be oh so comforting. And yet at the same time, oh so scary when I know that I'm not having thoughts or motivations that are pleasing to him. Verse 36, therefore, and this is the key verse of this message, and, and this is essentially the end of the message uh, from Peter, but, but more goes on and through the end of the chapter. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Christ, both Lord and Messiah. This Jesus whom you crucified. It's like he's twisting that knife just a little bit more again. He wants them to remember that they're responsible. The Messiah came. They didn't recognize him. They didn't acknowledge him as their king, as their spiritual savior, as their Messiah. And they put him to death. They have to come to grips with that. They have to... Before they can move forward, they have, to, they have to settle that and figure out what they're going to do with it. Just a couple things real quick that, that I didn't touch on last week in verse 36. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36, if you would. Ezekiel chapter 36. Back in Acts, it says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel... Who is the house of Israel? What is the house of Israel? We need to understand that those those men and their families that were in captivity and they came back to Jerusalem that were mentioned at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, they were of the house of Israel. But what about this house of Israel? Ezekiel 36, begin in verse 16. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. Therefore I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they had shed on the land because they had defiled it with their idols. I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed throughout the lands. According to their ways and their deeds, I judged them. When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name because it was said of them, these are the people of the Lord that they have come out of this land. But I had chosen for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where we went. And if you look over at verse 32, I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. 
On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places will be rebuilt. And the desolate land will be cultivated instead of being desolated in the sight of everyone who pass by. And they will say this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden in the waste. Desolate and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left around about you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. There's a penalty for our sin. And in the, the, the land of Israel, the house of Israel, the Jews were dispersed and scattered. That's why those men lived all over the known world at the time. They were scattered because of the nation's disobedience to God, which began with individual sins of worshiping the idols of the lands that they were in. But I... I so appreciate in verse 22 and 32 where he says, this isn't about you guys. This isn't about you. This is for my name, for my glory, that God would be elevated and proclaimed. That this was going to be done to draw attention to him, not to the Jewish people. but it was for his holy name that, that he did this. Now, and a little, just a little broader picture of the, the house of Israel and who that was and why they were scattered. And then, the, again, those 15 cities and states that the, the men had come back to Jerusalem, well, some of them were living back, had moved back. Some were visiting because of Pentecost. They'd come home to celebrate the feast. So therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain, not just the Jews that are here at the feast today, not just the, the ones in Jerusalem, but the whole house of Israel, those that are still scattered abroad. And then in Ezekiel, of course, we're seeing that someday what he's, he's bringing them back to the land itself. Not for their glory, but for his. Because it is all about you, Father. It is all about you. Let the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, has made Christ, both Lord and Christ, and, and Messiah. The Lord there is capital L, small O-R-D. In the translations, that means, that, that's, that word is translated Adonai. And I'm sure that you've heard that, especially there's some Christmas songs with, with that name in it, Adonai that he is the master. He is sovereign. He is in control of all things. He is Lord. But just to expound on that and express that a little more, he said he has made him both Lord and Messiah. He is also spiritually in charge. He was your spiritual Savior. And yet you crucified him. And then he ends that verse with that, this Jesus whom you crucified. He wants them to remember that. And, and the Holy Spirit wants them to remember that because the Holy Spirit is the one preaching through Peter. In verse 37, now when they had heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter, the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? 
They were pierced to the heart. Did Peter do the piercing? No. The Holy Spirit did the piercing. That's the Holy Spirit's work. Often quote that that Paul says that he watered, or he planted and Apollos watered, but Christ is the one that gave the increase. We, We have a responsibility to carry out our work and do what we're supposed to do. But then the Holy Spirit steps in. Again, Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is like a channel of the water, and God directs it wherever he will. It's God that does the work. God does the work in our hearts. He's the one that convicts us of our sins. Preacher can stand up here all day and yell and scream and holler and pound his fist and pound the pulpit and say, you're all dying and going to hell. And that's true. Without Jesus, we are. But it's the Holy Spirit that's going to work hard and convict you. They were pierced to the heart. They were cut to the quick. They were ashamed of what they had done. So then they they use the term of kindred spiritness, if that's the right way to say that. They say brethren. Their, their, their hearts have already been changed. Okay, it would be before Peter started preaching. Some of these folks in verse 13 there of chapter 2 were mocking and saying they're drunks. But through Peter's sermon, the Holy Spirit has convicted them. The Holy Spirit has, has worked on their hearts. And now they're not mocking anymore. They're using a term of, of kindred hearts, kindred spirits, brothers. The term for, for literally for brother or, or father is, is what that term brethren means. What shall we do? Now this is, this is a different question in, in chapter 16, we're going to get up to the Philippian jailer where, where Paul and Silas are in prison and, and God delivers, delivers them with a great earthquake and all the prison doors open and they walk out. The Philippian jailer is going to come and, and kill himself, fall on his sword. And they say, don't do that. And he says, what must I do to be saved? That's a different question than what they're asking here. They're asking, brethren, what shall we do? Just, just by that term brethren, you know that they've, that they're, to some extent, his, that their, their heart has changed. But the question here that says, what shall we do, gives, gives the tone of, okay, Peter, you've just preached to us about this Jesus. You've preached to us about this, this Holy Spirit, and you've told us that we've killed our Messiah. What can we do now? What can we do to fix that? Can we bring him back? Can we bring him back and set him on his throne like we should have before? How can we fix this? What can we do? It's not what must we do to be saved. Because at this point, I believe the ones asking this are saved. They're already saved because they're saying brothers. Their heart has changed. But what shall we do? They they. 
They knew, they understood that they had done wrong. They understood, and just just that verse before, right at the end that, that Peter's finishing his sermon, this Jesus whom you've crucified, the Holy Spirit cut to the quick. He pierced their hearts. And they said, what can we do to fix this? How can we make this right? Now that we understand that we messed up pretty big, what can we do? Verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to stop there before I go on because there's some explanation that has to happen in the second part of that verse. But Peter said to them, first of all, repent. Have a change of heart, a change of attitude. And we we talk about repent always having the idea of making a 180. Instead of walking towards the world, we need to do a 180 and walk towards God. It's a change of heart. It's a change of attitude. It's a change of desire that has to take place. And then, and we've already talked about this in the book of Acts here, there is the baptism of the Spirit that we all have at the moment we are saved. But then there is also the filling of the Spirit that He comes upon us in special. If you think back to David, and I would talk that He would, that the Spirit would come upon Him, Samson, that there were times where the, they would experience the filling of the Holy Spirit. And, and we're given special gifts and, and powers through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's power, to carry out the work of God. So this first part here, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, is talking about being baptized into the family of God, being baptized, spiritually baptized by Jesus Christ, okay? Okay. For the forgiveness of your sins, we'll come back to that, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That part of it is talking about the filling of the Holy Spirit for special ministry to to carry out God's work. No, I'm not avoiding this. I will address it now. You must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That is a really poor translation of that of that verse. The Greek word is E-I-S, ice, ace, something like that. I don't know how to say it. And it can be translated in one of three ways. Okay, and, and in our language, we have the word know. And how many different, you can use, you can know something and you can say no to something. Or how about the word to? We have two, two, and two. It's the same word, sounds the same, but means three different things. Two. Three different things. This word translated can mean three different things, and unfortunately, the translators in the King that translated the King James brought the shortest one in. We don't know if it was to save space or save characters in writing or what, but we know from the rest of the the scriptures that we do not need, baptism does not save us. Jesus Christ and his work on the cross is what saves us. In Acts 3 and 5 and 11, when Peter preaches his other sermons in this book, never once is he talking about baptism. 
as a, as a means to salvation. The other two possible translations for the word EIS there that I, I believe, do most of your Bibles have the word for there? Whatever translations you have, it says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Okay. There are two other translations. One of them is on the basis of or on account of. If either one of those you put in there, then it makes a whole lot more sense and is in in sync with the rest of God's word. Okay? So if we read it like this, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ on the basis of the forgiveness of your sins. In other words, the only way we're going to receive the baptism of the Spirit, the only way we're going to come into that relationship with God, the only way that's going to happen is is if we are forgiven of our sins. If we accept Christ as our Savior, we will be forgiven our sins, and then we will receive the baptism of the Spirit. So, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ on the basis of the forgiveness of your sins. Does that make help that make sense or a little more clear? Okay, I'm getting some nods and I'm getting some like, I don't even know what you're talking about, man. It just went right over my head. I'll try to explain it once more and then we'll move on. If, if you translate that there, instead of the word for, but use one of the other options to, in the translation, either on the basis of or on account of. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ on the basis of the forgiveness of your sins. Okay? He's not saying that baptism is your salvation or that you must be baptized to be saved. If that's the case, all those in, in Hebrews 11, what we call the spiritual hall of fame, won't be in heaven because they weren't baptized. The fellow on the cross that Christ next to Christ that said, you'll be with me today in paradise. He didn't have the opportunity to be baptized. Baptism does not save you. Okay? We'll, we'll get onto that in a few minutes of what it is, but it is not a means of salvation. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit at salvation once those sins have been forgiven. And then we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the the filling of the Holy Spirit for special ministry, for, for carrying out God's purpose. Yeah, I should look at my notes before I go on. At the beginning of that verse, sorry, just to go back and point out, Peter said unto them, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. He again, just as he finished the verse before that, this Jesus whom you crucified is reminding them to be baptized into the name of the one that they just rejected. So that's going to take repentance. There's going to have to be a change of heart. Because in the weeks prior, 
They had Christ crucified. And so now, to repent unto his name of the one they crucified would take a change of heart and would take repentance. Okay, verse 39. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. The promise, what promise are we talking about? We're talking about the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's what Joel was talking about. That was David was talking about in the Psalms. For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off. The reference to all who are far off, look at Ephesians chapter 2 with me if you would. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at the time, at time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now Christ, Christ Jesus, whom... Excuse me. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So those that were far off refers to the Gentiles, those that were not of the house of Israel. Verse 17 and 18, And he came and he preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Remember the, the feast at Pentecost? The priests would wave the two loaves. They were the, the wave offering before the Lord. And one was representative of the Jews and one was representative of the Gentiles. And the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit came, it was, it was to bring unity, to, to put us both under the same umbrella, that we both have the same means of salvation. And this is what it says here, for through him... We both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Matthew chapter 11. Verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my load is, my load is light. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Come to me all who are weary. It's, it's for everybody. It's universal. The option of salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ is for those who are far off as well as for the Jews. Back to Acts chapter 2. Verse 39, for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. 
And with many other words, Peter solemnly testified and kept exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Be separate from the world. We are in the world, but we're not to be of the world. We talk about that that proverbial one apple, bad apple, and a whole bushel of good apples. Are all those good apples going to make that one bad apple good, or is that bad one going to rot all of them? The bad one will rot all of them. So we're to be separate from the world. We live in the world. We come in contact every day with people we work with, people at the grocery store, our neighbors, that do not know Jesus. And it's our responsibility to tell them. But we are not to be of them. We are not to live like them. There's supposed to be a difference. Not that you're the... the oddest kid on the block or boy those people are weird there should be a distinction there better be a distinction between a believer and a non-believer but it isn't from a position of us thumbing those our nose down on those that don't know Christ it's a matter of reaching out and loving them and sharing our story with them. To share what Christ has done in our lives and how he's been able to change our hearts. And then we get back to the, the idea that, that baptism, the water baptism, is to identify you as a Christ follower. It's to show to the world. And and, um, I I know I've got some really crazy weird ideas on things. I I get that. But when we build our, our our auditorium back on someday in the future, this, this will not be my decision. This will be the church's decision. So if the church decides to go in the other direction, I am okay with that. That's perfectly fine. But I don't want to see the space wasted with the baptistry. He just said that out loud? Because I think our baptism needs to take place out at the lake. The baptism is for the world to see. It's not for the church to come and awe and take pictures and wow, that's cool, they got baptized. You and I know that if somebody's going to be baptized, we know that they know Jesus. The purpose of the baptism is to do it out there where the world can see. Let your light so shine. Okay, I want to get it right, and I never do say it just right. So Matthew 6. You don't need to turn there. Matthew 5. Matthew 6, come on, where are you? Matthew 5. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It's for God's glory. It's not that they can come pat you on the back because someday they may shoot you for it. They ain't going to pat you on the back because you want to proclaim Jesus Christ. But it's, it's to be done out there. It's for the world to see that we're going to be separate from this perverse generation in Acts 2. There needs to be a separation. 
Again, we're not better than them, but we have Christ and we need to share Christ with them. So Peter continues to testify and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved, be separate from this perverse generation, from those and in the perverse generation is those that don't know Christ. Because we have the privilege and the opportunity to know Christ. Good, I've got some time left. A couple months ago, Beth and I were driving and I heard a sermon. And, and I knew right then that I wanted to, to plagiarize that sermon and, and put it here, and I'm going to tell you who it is so that you can go home and YouTube and listen to the whole thing. It's only about 20 minutes long. And, and may, some of you, if you listen regularly to Christian radio, may have caught it. It's the, the pastor's name is Charles Stanley. And I'm going to give him full credit, and I'll tell you his name now, and I'll tell you his name when I'm done, okay? Because I don't want to take any credit for this. This is his, not mine. But if you got a pen, you need to write down because the title of his sermon was How to Build Truth into Your Life. And they're all D's, so you know it wasn't me because I don't alliterate that well. How to Build Truth into Your Life. If you're, if you're ready, I, write, write quickly or I can give it to you later. Number one, desire. There needs to be a hunger to build into our lives. There needs to be a desire. When you get hungry for dinner and your stomach starts growling, okay, maybe you won't take it quite to the point that Esau did of giving up his birthright for some good stew. But get out of my way. I'm going to get to the dinner table and eat. Do we have that kind of desire for God's word? Decision. You need to make a conscious decision to pursue and then to apply the truths. Digestion. You need to meditate. How many times do cows chew and put it in their stomach and bring it back up? And Okay, that's what we need to do with God's Word. We need to digest it. Meditate, memorize, pray over it. Pray God's word. Number four, definite application. I always say that when I I preach, it's going to mean something to you and something different to you and something different to you and something different to you. Because we're we're not all in the same place in our spiritual lives. But we, we need to let the Holy Spirit work and apply it to us. We need to make definite application. Frequently, at the end of my sermons, I'll say, now what? Because if you come back next week exactly like you are today, why why bother? Why are you coming? Our spiritual walk with God needs to be closer by next Sunday than it is today. And the only way that's going to happen is if I make definite application. Daily evaluation. Last Sunday we had communion. You should do that yourself every day. Not necessarily the bread and the juice. If you go there, that's fine. That's between you and the Lord. But each and every day, 
We need to go before the Lord and say, Lord, examine my heart. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. There needs to be discussion. We can build truth into the lives of our children, our grandchildren, our spouses, our siblings. We need to discuss God's word with them. A lot of people don't have any problem talking about the latest sports team or who shot what deer and what's going on at the knitting club or what the book of the month is. But how much time do we spend as a family or as individuals discussing God's word? Discipline. It takes discipline to stay on task. You have to be actively pursuing. It's not passive. If you're passing, you might as well, if you're passive, you might as well just pass out. And you got to be active. It takes discipline. It takes desire. It takes drive. It takes determination. It takes dependence on the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, open my eyes. Challenge me. Teach me the truths of God's Word. Number nine, determination. Again, along with discipline, determination. We must persist. Okay, you want a little more alliteration? We must persist in our pursuit of God. It's not for the faint of heart. And then we must dismiss Satan's lies. The doubts that he will throw in. To say, you can't do that. There's no way you can. And he's right, we can't. But in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can. How many times, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give up Pepsi. <laughs> Not doing very good at it. But how many times do I want to keep from doing that and I think that I can do it by self-discipline I can stay away from it obviously I'm talking about much bigger things in our lives than Pepsi but I can't do it on my own but I can do it in the power of the spirit so dismiss the doubts that Satan will throw your way. Again, this is Charles Stanley. It was the the title of his sermon. If you go to YouTube and type it in is How to Build Truth into Your Life. Folks, if we walk out of this place, okay, another pastor shared this a couple weeks ago, Erwin Lutzer. Statistics and studies, and I know we can make statistics say whatever we want. But in evangelical Christian churches today, only 11% of Christians are in God's Word every day. He's not asking you to do a deep dive. He's just opening the Word to read it. 11% of Christians. That means maybe four of us in this room just based on those statistics. I hope this church's number is a lot higher than that. 
But statistically, there's probably only four of us in here that reads God's Word every day. What if you only ate one meal a week? How hungry would you be? And when they heard this, they were pierced to their heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? There's a whole lot we can do, folks. You have to make that decision. Have a desire. Digest God's word. Meditate on it. We meditate on so many other things. Football games. You, you, you name it. Let the Holy Spirit talk to you and convict you about what's in your life. I, I keep bringing up football games because I know that that's an area that I really enjoy, that I have to be careful of, that it doesn't control me. Do, and, and how sad to say it that way, but do I have the desire for God's word that I have to watch football? Should be no contest. Folks, if you come back next week the same as you are today, why are you coming? Is it to say you went to church? Is it to check that box? Love you guys. I pray for you. But what are you letting the Holy Spirit do in your life? Are you putting up walls and not letting him in? If only four of us are in God's word daily, imagine what the Holy Spirit could do if every one of us was. Can you imagine how quickly the Holy Spirit can turn Newberry upside down for Jesus? If every one of us would be in God's word every day, if every one of us would meditate, would pray over God's word, pray for one another, but pray over God's word, pray God's words. Father, pierce our hearts. May your Holy Spirit convict us of our of our sins of omission. Not just the ones we commit, Father, but the ones that we commit by omitting, by not spending time with you, by not praying, by not meditating, by not having a desire for your word. (laughs) 
Father, drive it home to us. Because we know that the Holy Spirit that came upon that temple in Jerusalem, upon those men, is the same Holy Spirit that we have access to the power of even today. And yet, Father, we don't. We don't access it. We don't let it rule in our lives. We don't let it control us in our attitudes. Father, we need to. Father, I pray that you'd make every one of us miserable until we set it right with you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the the witness and the testimony of Peter and the apostles and the disciples. Thank you for those that led the way. Help us not to let them down. And more importantly, God, help us not to let you down. Send your spirit. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Stand with me.